Him. By now, you have your Bibles and you've turned to Lamentations chapter 1, verse, uh, verses 1 through 22. We're going to fix our attention on the entire text. Um, and, and, and I'm looking forward to this series. We are working through the entire book of Lamentations, uh, preaching through a series that we're simply calling Lament. Um, we are in an unprecedented season. Obviously, all of us know that. Uh, an unprecedented season with this national and, and, and global pandemic that has created national and global grieving. Um, as you are hearing this message, for example, this morning, uh, probably by now nearly 40,000 people have died in this country in just literally seven weeks' time. Over 160,000 people in this world have died from this virus. And, and there is still a tremendous amount of uncertainty that's, that's circling around this virus. There's a tremendous amount of uncertainty uh, circling around the vaccine, circling around the treatment. Um, and so we don't know how many deaths to expect. We don't know how many deaths we're going to see. Um, we, are, we are still confined to our homes right now. We are still unable to go and enjoy a nice dinner. We are still unable to go and see a good movie. Um, and many of our kids, their school lives have been completely and totally flipped upside down. Um, there are many seniors around this community and around this city and around this state and around this nation that will not have the, the privilege of experiencing a graduation ceremony as a result of this virus. Sports are being canceled everywhere. Um, people, are, people are losing money. People are losing jobs. Some are losing both. And churches, churches like ours, are all and churches all around the world are having to meet through computer screens and TV screens because of the real threat that a simple gathering could lead to mass infections and even death. As I walk through the grocery stores now with my face mask on, I'm just, you know, and I wear the face mask, obviously, it's both protection and prevention, but I'm, I'm blown away. It's, it just feels surreal walking through grocery stores right now. This is an unprecedented season of discomfort unlike anything I've experienced in my lifetime, and I imagine many of you have experienced in your lifetime. And so while I was preparing for this morning's message, um, I happened to stumble across an article in Christianity Today by Jonathan Dotson. He is a pastor, lead pastor at City Life Church in Austin, Texas, and he speaks directly to this discomfort by quoting a Harvard Business Review article that perfectly captures this feeling that we probably all are feeling right now, and I'll quote that. It says, in an interview with Harvard Business Review, David Kessler, an expert on death and loss, says the discomfort we're feeling is grief. The world has changed. City streets are barren, businesses have shut down, and investments are plummeting. Church members have lost their jobs and watched the falling Dow drain their savings. Loss is upon us. Not simply the loss of things, but the loss of embodied joys. He continues by saying, we can't pop into our favorite coffee shop for a cappuccino and an encouraging conversation with a friend. Our children are denied the thrill of chasing one another around bark carpeted playgrounds. Post-church service fellowship is reduced to gallery view online chats. Everything is once removed, a click away from flesh and blood, face-to-face, -face, wholesome everyday interaction, even a hug feels wrong. For the smart people listening, if you've heard the name David Kessler, and that name sounds vaguely familiar to you, it's because he wrote a book on the five stages of grief. 
something that many counselors around the world have used to counsel people through moments of great loss. And Kessler uses those five stages of grief to talk actually about, in, in this same interview, to talk about the five stages of grief in the pandemic that we're faced with. Number one, the stage of denial. This virus won't affect us. Number two, the stage of anger. You're making me stay home and taking away my activities. Number three, the stage of sadness. I don't know when this will end. Number four, the stage of acceptance. This is happening, and I have to figure out how to proceed. Number five, the stage of bargaining. Okay, if I, if, if I social distance for two weeks, will everything be better? But here's where Pastor Jonathan Dotson really helped me in this Christianity Today article. I want you to listen to this. He said, I leapt over anger, denial, and sadness to acceptance. I had to get on with leading the church. I contacted the at-risk. I wrote encouraging articles. I recorded psalm-based devotionals, and I prayed for the anxious and the disheartened, but I had not grieved myself. As I sorted through things, I began to realize that grieving is also leading. You see, Pastor Dobson is on to something here. You see, he, like so many other people in this country, including me, struggle with the concept of grieving. We tend to rush past grieving towards acceptance of a thing. In fact, we don't know how to grieve for the most part. We don't know how to lament. The definition of lament, it, lamenting or lamentation is a formal expression of grief in the face of loss or death, a dirge, if you will. See, the act of biblical limita- uh, lamentation is multi-layered. The act of biblical lamentation is in part a protest. God, have you forgotten us? God, have you left us? But it's also in part confession. God, We have turned away from you, and thus we deserve your wrath and your judgment. It is, in part, acknowledgement of our shame, and and it's also, in part, petition. God, we need you to intervene. You see, many biblical characters have gone through the stage of grief and lamenting. In fact, one writes an entire book about this activity, this act called lamenting. And that, that book is the book that we'll be studying for the next few weeks, Lamentations. You see, this book is a collection of poems that most believe were written by the prophet Jeremiah. And they were written to capture the heart of a people whose lives have been wrecked, whose city has been lost, and whose hope has been crushed. These poems capture the emotions and the state of being of the Jewish people shortly after the Babylonian siege of Jerusalem in July 586 BC that laid waste to the capital city. Now there are five chapters in this book and out of the five chapters there are four of those, four of those chapters are acrostic poems, meaning that they are alphabet poems. There are 22 verses in, in, in each one of those chapters and, and, and for those 22 verses they represent the let, a letter, a corresponding letter in the Hebrew alphabet. Now one of those chapters actually has 22 verses times three and it goes through the Hebrew alphabet three times. 
Lamentation is, is intended to help us see the grief, see that grief, rather, is normal. And, and oftentimes, grief is necessary to get to praise. This is a lesson many of us are still learning in America. Exceptionalism and triumphalism are what sells here in the States. And so we don't have categories for, for grief. Even when you look at our music, you can see that we don't have categories for grief. For example, there are, uh, out of all of the psalms, roughly 40% of them could be categorized as lament psalms or containing elements of lamenting. And yet, when you look at our hymnals, even, the, even all the major hymnals through all, throughout all the major denominations, there's less than 20% within those hymnals of lamenting psalms. Most of our popular contemporary Christian music does not have lament in their songs. You see, because American Christianity's overemphasis on triumphalism, uh, triumphalism and exceptionalism leaves us no room for lament. And because of this overemphasis on triumphalism and exceptionalism, we are both unwilling and unable to see faith through any other lens but victory. And as a result, we don't have categories for loss. We don't have categories for when the job doesn't pan out. We don't have categories for when the marriage of our dreams ends up being a horror movie nightmare. We don't have categories for broken people betraying our relationships through their brokenness. We don't have categories for when church people fail to act like the church, including us. We don't have categories for when that pain in my body that I prayed to God for years to relieve me of won't go away. We don't have categories for when my family member won't get saved. We don't have categories for why those that I love deepest sometimes are the ones that die quickest. We don't have categories to process suffering, to process agony, to process loss. And because we don't doubt, and because we don't have these categories, it is so easy for doubt to creep into our lives. After all, when you've been told for so long that in Christ Jesus you always and only win, what happens when you have to actually take an L? But see, we need this category desperately. We need a category for grief. We need a category to lament. See, oftentimes, praise for God and hope in God comes through the journey of lament. And we must often journey through grief to get to the other side where praise and hope is. And this is what the book of Lamentations shows us. This first chapter is a conversation with the city itself. It's a conversation between the author or a conversation where the author speaks and the city speaks. The city here in this chapter is named Lady Zion. Chapter 1 and chapter 2 and chapter 4 of this book all begin with the same Hebrew word, eka, that is translated how. You see, how is a statement of disbelief. And this is how this chapter begins with the word how. How could this be, in other words? How in the world did we end up here? Lament, number one, is protesting our loss. How could we have lost everything? 
Lament is a cry of protest for what's been lost, and it's, and it's a raw opportunity to just ask God why. We hear this question in the prophet's words as he reflects on what once was. In, in, in verse 1 of chapter 1, he says, How lonely sits the city that was full of people. How like a widow has she become, she who was great among the nations, she who was a princess among the provinces has become a slave. You see it again in verse 4 as he grieves the loss. He says, the rose to Zion mourn, for none come to the festival. All her gates are desolate. Her priests groan. Her virgins have been afflicted, and she herself suffers bitterly. He says, this city was once full of people, and now it's barren. This city had road that people flooded the roads leading into this city at one point in time, and now none come to the festivals. In these scriptures, we hear a longing for what once was, and that's okay. You see, sometimes the way we live the Christian life, we give the impression that the holier we are, the less we are supposed to feel when we lose. We leave the impression that just because we know of, of eternity, we aren't supposed to hurt about the losses that we experience in the right now. Lamentations is a reminder that those who are spiritual are still human. As we briefly mentioned last week, the presence of the spiritual is not the absence of the emotional. It's okay to grieve losses because it is only a sign that something or someone has been deeply loved. This poet grieves what has happened to this great, great city, his great, great city, this was the city of King David. This was the city where God's temple was established. And so it wasn't just a political capital. It was a spiritual capital. And in the blink of an eye, it had been reduced to ashes. And its people had been exiled. It's okay to ask the question in those moments, what is really going on? The psalmist asks the question in Psalm chapter 22, for example, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. These words were, were repeated by no less than our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, in his final hours of suffering on the cross. Jeremiah's poems are intended to ask the question, why, Lord? Why did you take our city? Why did you take our people away from us, leading them into exile? But, but it doesn't stop. Lamenting doesn't stop with protesting laws. Lamenting, lamenting continues with confession of our sin. On several occasions in the poem, the prophet makes sure to bring to our attention that this grief that Jerusalem and her inhabitants are experiencing is not simply the result of chance, but it is the product of continued disobedience and rebellion. In verse 5, he says, her foes have become the head. Her enemies prosper because the Lord has afflicted her for the multitude of her transgressions. Verse 8, the prophet says, Jerusalem sinned grievously, therefore she became filthy. 
All who honored her despise her, for they have seen her nakedness. She herself groans and turns her face away. Verse 14, my transgressions were bound into a yoke by his hand. They were fastened together. They were set upon my neck. He caused my strength to fail. Verse 18, the Lord is in the right, for I have rebelled against his word. You know, leading up to the Babylonian siege of Jerusalem, there were, they were given the people that inhabited the city, the people that inhabited the nation were reminded constantly by God to turn from their wicked ways, to turn from their sin, and to turn their hearts back to God. And yet they declined over and over and over again until the Lord allowed them to be delivered over to the Babylonians. Now in, a mo in this moment of grief and opportunity, um, uh, uh, I'm sorry, now in this moment of grief and in, in, in this moment uh, uh, opportunity to acknowledge their sin has been permitted. Lament offers opportunity for confession. You see, part of the trouble with a constant posture of victory and constant posture of triumph like the one we have in the States is that it leaves us unable to come to grips with our own sin and the pain and the shame that it causes us and those who we sin against. See, when there's constant victory, when there's no loss, when there is no defeat, then that means that there is no sin, there is no wrongdoing. We know that's not true. You know, one major quality of our American triumphalism and exceptionalism is to disregard our role in suffering, to ignore the fact that sometimes the suffering is, in fact, our fault. However, these lamentations will allow no such thing because lamenting is not about passing blame. Lamenting is about facing reality. For example, if we are always victorious, then we leave no room to acknowledge our failures and our friendships that have fallen apart in our lives. Or we leave no room, if we leave no room for lament, then we leave or we never have the opportunity rather to evaluate whether we have played a role in the damaging of our relationships with our spouse or with our children. You know, we often look to the redemptive work of Jesus and the fact that in him we have complete and total forgiveness and deliverance from sin and that we've been declared not guilty. And we take that to mean that we should no longer expect consequences for our actions. But brothers and sisters, sin carries attacks. It damages relationships. It damages marriages. It, sh it shatters business partnerships. It costs us jobs. And so oftentimes what lament allows us to do is to confront our role in our sin or to confront our role in our suffering, to confront our role in our shame and the shame that we've created for others through our sin. But moving even beyond the individual to the corporate, when we don't lament collectively and try to move immediately and when we try to move immediately to praise and to victory, we miss opportunities to look introspectively within ourselves as a church and as people and as a country and as a world and ask ourselves, where did we go wrong and why are we in the mess that we are in right now? See, part of the reason America experiences the same issues with hatred and division and lack of unity and reconciliation is because we are too 
uncomfortable with the lamenting process. We want to rush past the stories of hurt. Sometimes we don't even want to hear the stories. One of the things we try to do at City Light is that we, we obviously try to lean into those conversations, to leave room to hear about the hurts. But if any of you have ever taken part in some of those conversations that, we, that we've had, then you know one thing. They are hard to have. But see, saints, they are supposed to be. Lamenting isn't supposed to be easy. Otherwise, we would do it more. Otherwise, we wouldn't have to be reminded to do it. We don't do it because we don't like where it takes us. And we don't do it because we don't like what it requires from us. It requires selflessness. It requires acknowledging faults. It requires acknowledging wrong. It requires embracing hardships. You see, in this first chapter, Jeremiah mourns, but he doesn't look to cast blame elsewhere. He doesn't look to run past or run away from the confession part. In this lament, he accepts on behalf of the nation the blame for the sin they committed that led to Jerusalem's demise. And we would do well to do the same in our lamenting, whether it be individually or whether it be corporately. Thirdly, lament is acknowledging our shame. All throughout this text, there is a new sense of shame that has come as a result of this devastation to this city. What once was a mighty nation is now nothing more than rubble, and shame accompanies that. There's even a use of language in, uh, of a woman being violated when you read through this text. For example, when you read through verse 8, you hear that all who honor her despise her as a result of her becoming filthy. They have seen her nakedness. You hear in verse 9 that her uncleanness was in her skirts and she took no thought of her future, therefore her fall is terrible. You hear in verse 10, the enemy has stretched out his hands all over her precious things, for she has seen the nations enter her sanctuary. We all know that the, that the shame that is felt when a woman is violated is the deepest levels of shame that a person can feel. And so, in these moments, Jeremiah is connecting this loss to, to the deepest sorts of shame possible. But we also hear, of, hear language of isolation in this text. For example, when you look at verse 2, you look at verse 7, you look at verse 9, you look at verse 16, you look at verse 17, you look at verse 21, there is a common theme in every single one of those verses, and it is this. There is no one there to comfort her. All have left Zion. She is left alone. You see, lament is often performed in the confines of loneliness, isolation, shame. You see, we often come to a place of lament when we have nowhere else to go. Which, by the way, probably explains why even in a pandemic like the one we are facing, there is so little lamenting taking place. You see, because even in the midst of this, this great tragedy, one of the greatest trage tragedies in a generation, we still have distractions to give us the illusion of presence and company. Netflix, social media, web meetings, etc. Things to keep us occupied and to keep our minds occupied. We run to these distractions, not just during pandemics, but we run to them when we fall short 
of God's glory and sin when we sin. We run to them when someone else fails us. We run to them when we fail others. Why? Because the silence and the isolation we tend to avoid because we simply don't like what it shows us about ourselves. However, however, lamenting gives us the gift of having to face the shame that this grief or these failures have produced. It gives us the opportunity to allow this isolation and this shame to do what it was intended to do, unveil our neediness. Christian Arthur Chip Dodd defines healthy shame as the inborn feeling of knowing that we are needy. It is the acknowledgement that without you, I won't make it. It is a feeling of dependency. Shame, what shame does is it grants us the opportunity to not only see our neediness, but in particular to see our dependency on God. Lamenting avails us the opportunity to see our shame in that light. Lamenting avails us the opportunity to see that, yes, without God, I am alone. And I may be, in fact, despised. And I may have been laughed at. And I may have been talked about. But through it all, what I've discovered is that, God, I need you. Which leads me to my last point. Lament is petitioning. God. Lamenting doesn't end with protest for what we've lost, and it doesn't end with confession of our sin, and it doesn't even end with the acknowledgement of shame and the isolation that we experience through grief. But lamenting doesn't truly end until we take the moment to desperately cry out to our God. Verse 20, it, it, you see this crying out taking place. It says, look, O Lord, for I am in distress. Look, O Lord, for I am in distress. My stomach churns. My heart is wrung within me because I have been very rebellious. There's the acknowledgement again. In the street, the sword bereaves. In the house, it is like death. They heard my groaning, yet there is no one to comfort me. There's the isolation again. All my enemies have heard of my trouble. They are glad that you have done it. You have brought the day you announced. Now let them be as I am. Let all their evil doing come before you and deal with them as you have dealt with me because of all of my transgressions. For my groans are many and my heart is faint. You know, this tragedy has made one thing clearer to the poet than, than, than it has ever been before. And that is this. If the Lord doesn't intervene, then rescue will never come. The poet realizes that the Lord is the one who is present when no one else is there. The poet realizes, realizes that the Lord will redeem when there is no one else there to rescue. The Lord will rescue. The poet calls upon the Lord. Look, O Lord, for I am in distress. I need you. No one else can do it. No one else can rescue Jerusalem from bondage. No one else can, res uh, can, can redeem the people of Jerusalem. Only you can do it, and I need you to do it. This is what lamenting is. It is acknowledging loss. It is acknowledging shame. It is confessing sin. But it is petitioning God and saying, God, come and intervene. Come and show yourself. 
you know, lamenting, if you, if you read these words, what you realize is that, is that lamenting in some ways is, 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 is what we all find ourselves doing in the moment of salvation. We come to our senses and realize that we truly are at a loss. Our sin has brought us to a place where there is no rescue. We are damned to destruction, eternal wrath. We come to a place where we realize that we have sinned and transgressed against our holy God, and therefore we need his forgiveness. We confess our sin openly to him. We come to him recognizing what sin has done to us, which has brought us much shame and regret. And we come to him petitioning him, saying, God, intervene. God, rescue me. God, I am in distress, so look at me. And God did. God looked at you. God looked at me when God sent Jesus Christ. God the Father sent his son to die on the cross. When Jesus was hung, it was God looking at us in our distress. When Jesus was, when Jesus was wounded, it was God looking at us in our grief. Jesus was buried and Jesus rose from the grave. It was God's way of bringing deliverance and bringing redemption, hearing the cries, hearing the lament of his people. So in many ways, we've already seen God answer the call of our lament. So why should we stop? In times of desperation, in times of grief, in times of sorrow, in times of pain, in times of suffering, this is what we cannot run past. We can't get to acceptance. We can't get to victory. We can't get to praise without going through the process of grief, without crying out to our God, confessing our faults where we have them, acknowledging the shame that's been brought, protesting the loss, but then petitioning him from, uh, petitioning, uh, petitioning God to come and to intervene on our behalf, to come and to deliver us, knowing that he will, whether it be in this life or the next. Would you pray with me? God, we love you so much. And we ask, Lord God, that you would give us a heart to lament when the, time is, when the time suits lamenting. To allow us, Lord God, to not try to run past it, Lord, but, but, but to allow us the opportunity to simply settle our, settle our hearts, God, settle our souls, Lord, so that we would lean into those moments, that we would lean into those opportunities that we've been given. And Father, we pray, Lord, that as we cry out to you that you would answer our call, that you would intervene on our behalf, Lord God, and that you would show yourself mighty and that you would show yourself strong. First and foremost, through the person and work of Jesus Christ, who was, who was crucified, buried, res rose from the grave with all power and ascended into heaven and still remains interceding at your right-hand side for us daily. Father, help us, Lord God, have a heart to cry out for your intervention. Lord, we love you, we thank you, and we give you all the praise, and we give you all the glory and honor. It's in your son Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. God bless y'all. Love y'all. We hope to see you guys next week. But until then, we're praying for you.